friends, lend me your engineers. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Paul. I'm here with Cameron. Hello, Paul. Hello, Cameron. Should probably get to the podcast. Let's get to the podcast. <laughs> Helen Huang from the Brain Lab. So you are director of the Brain Lab here at UCF. What what is what is the Brain Lab? That sounds like something that you walk into and it's like a scene out of Frankenstein where there are brains and and glasses. Is is that an accurate portrayal of the Brain Lab? Uh, no, not not at all. Actually, okay. <laughs> uh, the Brain Lab Brain uh, in this case stands for Biomechanics Rehabilitation and Interdisciplinary Neuroscience, and it abbreviates to Brain. Yeah, that would be probably hard to fit on the business card. It is. It is also hard to fit into an email. Uh-huh. And then since then, I have sort of regretted having such a long uh, actual uh-huh. lab name. But the brain lab is great because you tell some somebody that you're going to the brain lab and they're like, oh, I what is this brain lab? So what do you actually do at the brain lab? So we study neuromechanics. That's the interaction of neuroscience and biomechanics uh, for neuroscience. Uh, we're looking primarily at brain activity and muscle activity, and we're interested in understanding how people walk um, with an interest uh, in gait rehabilitation and fall interventions. What is gait? What does Gait's that word mean? Like walking. It's locomotion. So walking, mm-hmm. running, skipping. Oh, okay. Crawling. Crawling? Really? Crawling counts? It's a form of locomotion. Yeah. Okay. So I've I've I have actually been to the brain lab before. I was kidding about the the brains and jars thing. And when you walk in, you have this this tremendous treadmill in the in the center of your lab. What is this? Is this a uh, something that you could just go to the sports authority and and pick up this this treadmill, or was this a custom job? This is a commercially available treadmill that I purchased from a company that's based in the Netherlands. Um, it's a force. Well, it's an instrumented treadmill, meaning it can measure forces that your foot applies to the ground when you're walking. And this particular treadmill is mounted on a mobile platform, which means that I can move the treadmill in real time as people are walking. So I can have the treadmill essentially shift side to side um, when your foot hits the ground. Uh, We can increase this belt speed um, so that we can also sort of create these losses of balance as well. Uh, there's two belts. There's one for each leg. So you can do things like have one belt go faster than the other. You can also have one belt go backwards and the other one go forwards. And uh, people are really remarkably able to adapt to these different situations. So you're trying you're trying to trick people. You're trying to trip them. I am, yes, applying perturbations to disrupt their movements because I want to see how people adapt. I think it's really quite fascinating uh, to sort of probe like to what extent people are able to adapt. And in my case, like what are the brain areas and when are these brain areas active um, in learning to adapt to these different perturbations? So the the similarity between the professors here at UCF is everybody likes to trip someone. You had Andrew Dickerson who was who was researching how to trip mosquitoes. That's true. And Helen Huang, who is learning learning how to trip, to trip people, or really learning how to overcome. Well, I'm not really trying to make anybody slip uh-huh. or trip. I'm using very small perturbations mm-hmm. uh, on the treadmill. Um, something I'm doing that is new that I don't think other groups do is I'm actually applying this small perturbation on every stride mm-hmm. um, to see how people adapt to it over time. Whereas in most cases, people using slip or trip uh, paradigms for uh, looking at um, how people adapt during walking or for 
gait rehabilitation that actually is used for older adults to help improve their fall recovery. Um, they tend to use a larger perturbation uh, so that people actually do potentially slip and they trip. Um, and then they, they've seen that people are able to improve their uh, sort of balanced recovery to these slips and trips and sort of reduce their fall risk. Uh, so in that case, they have one perturbation as they're walking, let's say, across a hallway um, or down the lab, and you're wearing a safety harness, so you don't really fall or trip. Um, so in my lab, we also have a safety harness that our subjects will wear. So is it optional, though? It is not optional. No. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't know if we want to talk about this right now, but there is a chance that we will be strapping Cameron into into this device and i was just wondering if he wanted to do it without without the harness <laughs> it doesn't sound like i have much of a choice it sounds like it, the the harness is not optional mm -hmm. for for safety i, I understand for safety. yeah you know the irb institutional review board yeah we put that in there there's a safety harness that we use particularly well i'm talking about creating these losses of balance so i'm trying mm -hmm. to you know understand what are the brain areas and when are they active as people have these losses of balance and how do they recover from it? So obviously, and I'm testing older adults. Sure. So like when I, my parents were kind enough to come down and be among my first mm -hmm. uh, participants and um, yes, I put them in the safety harness. And of course, even then you're still sort of worried that they may do something <laughs> funny, uh -huh. but they actually they all said it was actually not as hard as they thought. And I was like, what? It's not as hard? I should make it harder. Yeah. But Can I don't you know. turn it up to 11? Is there like extreme testing? Um, we're going to play around with different parameters that we can change, um, including the magnitude. So how big is it, big it is, uh, the direction that the perturbations occur or when they occur. There might be different phases of the gate cycle where it's uh, you're more... Uh, unstable. Mm -hmm. So we're going to play around with that on Healthy Young Adults first and try to find out- On Cameron. Find out where, you know, a happy medium is. Like, uh -huh. we want to challenge them, but you don't want to challenge them too much because if you, you know, make the task too hard for people, then motivation, like students, they'll just sort of like- Deteriorates. Yes, they'll mm -hmm. deteriorate. So, so, but you also don't want to make it too easy because then you also won't see anything, right? So mm -hmm. we have to find this- um, sort of balance between the two. So once once you collect all your data, what what are you hoping to use that data to either learn or or what what is the what is the end goal of this project? Well, the long term goal in my lab is to try to develop gate rehabilitation therapies or robotic devices or fall intervention uh, therapies that are based on brain dynamics. So the idea is basically what what I'm, what I hope is that what's important for rehabilitation is actually activating uh, certain brain areas at certain times, and maybe if you can't actually practice walking because you have you can't support your body weight, or um, you have a hard time walking, uh, you're very unstable or something. Maybe if we can activate those brain areas with other types of exercise, maybe that will actually help you walk later on. So. I'm trying to identify the areas in the brain uh, that are involved in recovering from these losses of balance and, and when you're adapting to these perturbations. And I want to know when they're active and, and, and in what way. Um, and then trying to use these perturbations and maybe other approaches to essentially elicit 
that sort of brain activity without you necessarily having to walk Mm -hmm. and hoping that that will help with balance recovery and walking ability, things like that. Is this something that you've always been interested in? Uh, Honestly, no. No? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. What what led you to this this field? Uh, What led me to this field? Um, I'm not the sort of person who had like a set idea of what I was going to be and I made a plan and I was going to follow it through. Um, I've always sort of just followed whatever opportunities arose for me that I thought were interesting. Um, so uh, if you asked me when I was in high school or college or as a graduate student, if I would be doing this, the answer would be no. In fact, when I was a graduate student in Michigan, I worked with um, Professor Dan Ferris and when I was finishing up my PhD, he started to do this um, brain activity stuff during walking using electroencephalography. That's or commonly her, uh, known as EEG. Mm-hmm. That's where you place these um, recording electrodes on the scalp surface and you can measure the electrical activity. So he started to do this high-density EEG studies during walking when I was finishing up. And um, I just remember thinking... I will never do this. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm glad I'm leaving the lab now while he's transitioning to this like, you know, other uh, area of research. And I just think it's funny where I've learned that I should never say never. I'm never going to do something because it always comes back where I end up doing whatever it was that I said I never wanted to do, uh-huh. such as high density EG. <laughs> I think if there's one lesson to be taken away from this show is that you're going to end up doing what you said you would never do because Dr. Dickerson was in the exact same boat. He's like, I'm done with academia. Oh, I'm a professor now. Did you, so so maybe um, being a professor was not always something that you were considering? Oh, no, no. Um, When I was in high school, I applied to colleges with the intention of being a different type of doctor, a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went to this camp in Boston for you know high school students interested in medicine. And they started talking about ethics related to medicine. And I was <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to deal with this. <laughs> and so I told my dad, uh, I don't want to be a medical doctor anymore. And they just looked at me like, you applied to all these schools for purpose of going to medical school. And I did apply to MIT, mm-hmm. um, and he pretty much was like, well, if you want to be an engineer now, and you've gone to the best engineering school in the world, then I and his money, we're, <laughs> we're going to go to MIT. <laughs> and that's the way I phrase it, and I'm sure he, he thinks of it differently. Uh-huh. But, I mean, he has my best interest at heart, right? Sure, sure. Um, but they didn't have biomedical engineering back then which is something I was interested in. There was a minor, but not a major. Um, so something I think is interesting as I'm now in the mechanical and aerospace engineering department, right? Mm-hmm. And when I was a freshman at MIT, I remember trying to decide what major I wanted to be. And I was like, oh, maybe mechanical engineering sounds cool. I like you know, to build stuff and things like that. And so I signed up for one of the core classes there. Uh, it's called 2001, and I forget what it stands for. So at MIT, all the majors are actually numbers. Mm-hmm. So mechanical engineering is course two. Uh, materials science and engineering is course three, et cetera. Um, so I took, I signed up. I, sh- I signed up for a mechanical engineering <laughs> class, 
And I signed up for polymer chemistry, which is a material science class. And I really enjoyed and did well in polymer chemistry. So I just actually, I dropped the mechanical engineering class. <laughs> so I think it's kind of interesting that um, I had the choice of going to mechanical uh -huh. as an undergrad. And I, at that time, I, I wasn't all that interested. And yet now I'm an assistant professor in mechanical and aerospace engineering. Look at that. You never know. You, you never, never know. know. So coming out of, of college, where did you go into industry? I did. So when I graduated from MIT, I went to, I, I got a job at Michelin, the tire, tire company. Tires, yeah? yeah, tire company. Yeah. Um, their North American headquarters is in Greenville, South Carolina, which mm -hmm. is where I grew up. And I had an opportunity um, for a position there. Uh, I actually was what they called a process engineer. Uh, and I my job was actually really fun. So they there was a rubber manufacturing plant. And I was one of the engineers um, responsible for uh, managing a line of equipment, essentially, that produces the rubber. So essentially, you can imagine there's all these different lines of equipment in the plant um, that produces tons of rubber. Mm -hmm. And so I was in charge of, like, you know, making sure all the parameters were set to try to maximize the uh, output because obviously it's a business, so they mm -hmm. want you to make as much rubber as you can uh, during the shifts and also maintain certain quality. I didn't have to dress up or anything. I mean, it was a manufacturing plant. Mm -hmm. So I showed up. There's a locker room. There was like a jumpsuit. So <laughs> we each had three of them. It has your name on it. Like I have this little yellow patch. Like the Ghostbusters? <laughs> I guess kind of something like that. Yeah. So you put this on and, you know, you know, do your, have your work day. It was, it was kind of fun. I, I got to interact with the actual, you know, workers who are actually running all the equipment and talk to them. And, and one of the reasons I was interested in pursuing this, because some people would be like, why would you work in a manufacturing plant? And it's because ultimately whatever, you know, research and development um, devises, it has to get produced right. and it has to get produced at a, you know, scaled up version and so R&D would usually send us over formulations and we had to try to figure out how to run it um, and make, you know, a ton of rubber. Uh, whereas in their their little lab space, they're like, they have this little miniaturized thing and they're making a very small amount. And usually it doesn't transfer that well. Like what you create that's very small in scale doesn't necessarily translate to this very large scaled operation. Um, so I thought it was important to see, you know, what really goes on on the manufacturing side. So ultimately later, if I were to continue there and transfer to R&D, I'd have a better idea of, you know, what are the constraints, what are the parameters, what are things that are important to consider that people who go directly to R&D would never know. Did you meet the Michelin man? I believe he has a name. Uh, I think <laughs> Mr. Bib. Mr. Bib. <laughs> The Bendum? Bib. I think I've, the I think Michelin I've heard, bib? heard that before, uh -huh. um, but I can't verify. I don't, I never met him. Aww. But they have a store in downtown Greenville, South Carolina, um, that has all Michelin sort of like gear. <laughs> <laughs> so what led you, what led you to UCF? Was there, was it straight from Michelin here or there was, was there oh, some no. stops along the way? There are a lot of stops along the way. So when I worked at Michelin, that was right after undergrad, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so I was actually only there for about four months before I was like, mm, I don't know if I really want a career here at Michelin. They're a good company. They treat their employees well. Uh, I just didn't know if like corporate life mm-hmm. was something I was interested in and all those sort of like different l- layers of paperwork and bureaucracy and that's involved. Um, so I applied uh, late to a couple of schools for biomedical engineering because that's what I wanted to do from the beginning. Um, and I applied to Georgia Tech and University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like, I'm going to submit my application like December 31st. And I did, but I didn't like my essay. Mm-hmm. So I actually wrote another one and and, and sent it and said, hey, um, is there any way I can swap out my essay? essay oh, after you already submitted your after application? I already, yeah, after oh. I already submitted it. Um, and they accepted it. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be among like 40 students that they bring up for recruitment. Mm-hmm. So they fly us out and put us up and take us out and have us meet with a bunch of different professors and visit a lot of different labs, essentially trying to recruit us. And uh, at the end of the trip there, you meet with the chair of the department. And I remember when I met with him, I had applied for a master's degree, not a PhD. Mm-hmm. And when I met, he had said that he wanted me to switch from master's to PhD, and that I was being uh, awarded a first-year fellowship. Oh, wow. And he said that he thought I was a risk, but he thought I was a risk worth taking. Mm-hmm. And he told me I got the last one. Uh, <laughs> it was that essay. Um, I don't know. But I do know when I was like going and talking to different professors, I I did see that they had both. Oh. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but Michigan... Uh, what I heard from my advisor, uh, Dan Ferris, was that uh, one of my recommendation letters was really, really outstanding. And surprisingly, that was from my Shakespeare at the Opera pr- professor. Obviously. I took Shakespeare at the, op- uh, at the Opera at uh, MIT, um, and I ended up making a really good impression on the professors. And she wrote apparently a really fantastic recommendation letter for me or reference letter for me and um it's just kind of crazy right to think that i even got into graduate school for biomedical engineering Uh and i was able to start off right away you know getting a first year fellowship you know which obviously helps you uh right away get into like a research lab and Mm -hmm. and um do your coursework and things like that so that was pretty uh you know i i often think that I'm kind of meant to be here because of different things that happened along the way in terms of transitions, in terms of how I got here. So that was one of them. Um, And it took me a while, but I did end up getting my PhD. Um, And then after that, I'm not a person who really plans very far ahead. (laughs) I'm not the sort of person who makes a plan to say, this is what I'm going to do. I just kind of I'm a, I'm a procrastinator. I think everybody who knows me knows that. Um, and uh, I just sort of get things done when they need to be done. And um, when I was, you know, getting ready to graduate, I really hadn't thought about what I was going to do next mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> um, all I knew is that my, I got a, 
another fellowship from NIH um, to finish uh, funding my last few years at at Michigan. All I knew is my funding was running up, running out, mm-hmm. and I needed to finish up. <laughs> and I had no idea what was going to happen next, but it didn't matter. I just needed to finish up. <laughs> um, and I was really fortunate where um, I was contacted. Um, or someone made aware to me that um, my postdoc advisor at Colorado, Alea Ahmed, uh, was looking for a postdoc and suggested that maybe I apply. And uh, that's what happened. <laughs> so I applied and um, we were able to help me come out to Colorado. And I did my postdoc out there with her. And that was a really great experience. Got to do some really fun research related to motor adaptation and metabolic cost, which is essentially how much energy you use when you're um, making a movement. And that was also interesting <laughs> uh, in the sense that I was funded off of, they have a NIH T32 grant at the University of Colorado on aging. And we were trying to, I was, I applied for one of their postdoc positions because there was going to be an opening and I got, I did well, uh, but they thought they had an opening, but then they didn't. So the letter I got back was like, it was a rejection, but not a rejection. Okay. (laughs) So it pretty much was like, oh, they don't have a spot right now. But, you know, when there was a spot, if a spot opened up in that year, if I remember correctly, they were going to offer me the position. And it happened. (laughs) So I have all these little things that happen along the way that I'm just like, these things, do they really happen? Maybe they do happen. And people just don't talk about it. But Uh like, this is part of my like, you know, story here. Um, And that's like only like kind of halfway because after my postdoc, I went back to Michigan and again, worked with now Dan Ferris, where I said like, I'm never going to do EEG. (laughs) (laughs) And then I went back to learn about EEG and, um, so I was there for a little bit, and uh, he actually played football here. He did his undergrad here, and he got, I think it was in mathematics, and he played on the football team. And um, there was there was a lot of positions that MAE had, and he said, hey, did you apply to UCF? I was like, no. And one reason I didn't apply is because my family, we live in South Carolina, right? And my dad... He wanted to go to Key West. We went to Key West. And as we were driving through, I just remember thinking, I will never live in Florida. (laughs) Never seems to be recurring. Yeah. Too flat? Why? why I don't know. There's just something about Florida I didn't really like. And then the other aspect of that was um, I was like, I will never, if I was going to stay in academia, I was like, I will never be at a large university. Right. And UCF is what? Second largest. Second largest largest or something. So these are two nevers. And Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I don't want to apply there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I ended up applying uh, because as you can, as many of us know, it's very difficult to get a tenure track position. And I believe I was like one of the last people to apply for this particular position for UCF. And uh, guys brought me out here. I somehow had like a three-day interview which I don't, I have not seen any other candidate come in for three days, yeah. but I was here for three days and I was terrified because I don't think I do well in interviews. And then um, everybody's like, oh, when you interview, you know when you find the right spot. And for me, I was like, oh, 
I realized at the end of the three days, it really didn't feel like an interview. Mm -hmm. So because it didn't feel like an interview, I was like, oh, this is, you know, maybe a good spot for me to be at. So fortunately, UCF and MAE felt, you know, they felt positively about me and then now I'm here. So, uh, yes, nevers always come back to get you. Uh-huh. I was never going to do EEG. I was never going to be in Florida and I was never going to be at a large university. Mm-hmm. All three happened. All three happened. Uh-huh. So <laughs> what, I, what else are you never going to do so that we can look, look out for you doing that very soon? I can't recall anything that I've said recently where I'm like, I'm never going to do this. I think she she's learned. <laughs> right. At some to. point you're like, I, I might as well not say that because I know I'm going to go back. Yeah. So, um, so it's been a really interesting sort of path for me to get here. And I'm really thankful for all the people along the way that have been my mentors. And um, I think Dr. Dickerson had said something about like, his advisor at Georgia Tech, um, something that he really appreciated was he just did things that he was interested in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've been surrounded by people who are also in that mold. I've always been very fortunate that my peers um, are very curious and interested. And in fact, I, most of my, most of the people I know from Michigan, we're graduate students together. Most of us are in academia as mm-hmm. assistant professors or associate professors. And I'm not sure how many other people can say that. Mm-hmm. Like the majority of my peers, we are all still in academia. So it's just that group like of people who are just really interested in what we're doing and we enjoyed it and we like it. So we're still doing it. Yeah. And we're trying to, you know, pass it on to the next generation, trying to get them interested as well. So I think I've just been really fortunate for who I worked with, funding that helped me get through it. All these little, really weird little things I feel like came through that I just would have not expected. I want to go back because you mentioned Shakespeare at the opera. Okay. Does this mean <laughs> that you sing opera? I'm not. I'm not familiar with this. This what this program. What this means. I do not sing opera. Okay. I do come from a musical background. I played piano when I was younger. Interesting. There's a lot of Helen Huangs, by the way. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's another Helen Huang who's like in a similar area. She's at um, North Carolina State University slash UNC. She works with prosthetics. She decodes signals to control upper limb and lower limb prostheses. And um, yeah, so we get people get us confused. Um, and a lot of students here, they're interested in prosthetics. And I have to tell them like, just so you know, there's another Helen Huang. <laughs> right. So you may or may not have read my paper. You may think you read my paper, but mm-hmm. it actually might be the other Helen Huang. But she, we know about each other, um, and it's kind of funny. So if we get emails intended for the other, we just uh-huh. send them along. Um, but we're hoping to work on a project and get published together. Oh, well, that would be confusing. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm the I'm the junior one. She's more established. Oh, okay. Um, but um, back to music, there was a Helen Huang who was a pianist, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was coming through Greenville, South Carolina, and gave like a concert, I think at the Peace Center is what's called there. And my neighbor snipped out the article in the newspaper <laughs> and put it in my family's uh, mailbox, uh-huh. thinking it was me. And then I was mm-hmm. like, we were like, oh, no, that's, she, Helen's pretty good, but she's mm-hmm. not that good. <laughs> um, so I, I have a 
musical background, I guess. Um, and and at MIT, uh, you have to have a humanities concentration, I think is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I chose to uh, do mine in music. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. I think all the humanities, the number's like 21. So it's like 21M is music. 21H is history or something. 21L, I think, is literature. And my memory could be off. That may not be correct. But I ended up taking three music classes. And um, I prepped for Shakespeare at the Opera by taking Shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) the previous semester. Um, Not that I think it really helped, but it was kind of fun to uh, take a class that wasn't, you know, engineering-based. And, yeah, we listened to a lot of, involved a lot of, you know, listening to a lot of opera, writing essays, discussing it, things like that. So a very completely different set of skills. Mm-hmm. And I I guess you can say I kind of put myself in that position because um, I thought it was it would be interesting um, and it would put me outside of my comfort zone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of surprises me that I did that at that age. Uh, but that is something I think is important now is realizing that you know, you can only grow like as a person or as an engineer or as a professor or as a speaker or whatever if you make yourself a little bit uncomfortable like doing this podcast. <laughs> uh-huh. But did you know <clears throat> that there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day and tomorrow is just a dream away. Mm-hmm.